This is the Horse Radio Network. You're listening to the Stall and Stable Show. Ideas for happy horsekeeping. Do as I say, not as I do. I really should have fenced off that rock. I knew it when we cleared the lot for horses, and I've kept a mental sticky note since then that I should do something about it. At some point. Oops. (laughs) Too late. This episode takes listeners through my journey with Clarabelle, from the day of the accident to the day this episode airs. From a seemingly small cut on a cannon bone to three surgeries and over 30 days in the hospital. Find out why distal limb wounds are a risk no horse owner should ever take on, and what exactly happened that turned a simple cut into a financial mess. This is the update on Clarabelle. So listen in. This is episode 107 of the Stall and Stable Show, brought to you by American Stalls. Welcome back, listeners. Today's Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. I'm your host, Helena Harris. Did you know that this podcast is possible because of the support of our wonderful sponsors? If it were not for the enthusiasm and commitment from the folks at American Stalls, we'd have to charge you for the opportunity to listen to me blab about horsekeeping. So whether you're in the market for new stuff for your barn or not, but duh, we're horse people, (laughs) we're always eyeballing upgrades for our barn, do us a solid. Check out American Stall's website. I promise you that what they make adds great value to our lives and the lives of our horses. They wouldn't be a part of the Stall and Stable family otherwise. You can find them online at AmericanStalls.com. Welcome back. Listeners, it's me, and I'm here with quite the update. Uh, Now, I know some listeners have been getting bits and pieces of what's been going on with Clarabelle. (sighs) Let's take you all the way back to September. Yes, on September 7th, actually, what I need to do is take you back to September 6th. So here in New England on September 6th, we had a bit of a cold spell, and it was rainy. So the horses were locked in the barnyard, meaning they didn't get out to the field where there's grass and lots of space and, you know, area where they can graze. That doesn't mean they were locked in their stalls. They were able to mingle about in our barnyard overnight, and and it was fine. They can trot. They can canter. They keep each other moving. And, And nobody seemed kind of out of the ordinary. Everything was fine. So on September 7th, which was actually two days after the rain, I let them out into the field and, you know, I kept an eye on the ground. We still had lots of grass and I never like to turn my horses out when the ground is wet or even if it's damp, especially if they've been locked in without turnout or without lots of space to meander about property. Because I do know that if they get the zoomies, the ground is going to be slippery and all sorts of bad things can happen. So I waited enough time for the weather to dry the ground out. And I also knew that I was leaving for Georgia the next day. I was going to be taking Grace down to college, and we were all flying out the next morning. So I wanted to be extra careful. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, the best laid plans. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm letting the horses out. I'm taking blankets off. I'm doing what I have to do. And Mr. Brody who is on a diet and fairly grumpy because at the time he was, 
want to say on stall rest, but he wasn't being ridden or worked because he had re-injured the lower suspensory branch or the lower branch of his suspensory ligament in his right front leg. And Brody gets grumpy when he's not working and when he's on a diet. So on this particular day, Brody pulled something that he does very rarely, but when he does it, it's a real jerk move. He'll stand real quietly at the gate, waiting to walk very calmly through, as he does 99.999% of the time. As I unhooked the gate, this was hot tape, that horse plowed through at full speed ahead, a 12-inch gap between the fence and my body. And he was bolting not to go out to the field, but to get to Susie's hay, which was second cut. You know, he's on first cut, and of course, that's diet hay. He's not happy about it. So all this is happening. I'm opening the gate. I'm taking the tape down. That knocked me down. Yeah, I haven't been knocked down by a horse in ages. And he gave no indication that he was going to bolt the way he did. None. Not an ear flick, not a nose flare, nothing. He knocked me down. Well, I was so stunned. I was so surprised. I leapt to my feet, shaking myself off. I said, Brody. And that got the girls going. It was like a powder keg. You know, it was like Brody lit the match and that thing just burned until it hit all of that gunpowder. The mares exploded. They ran around the barnyard. Brody was running around the barnyard. It was a zoo. So I'm like, all right, I can't let these guys out into the field. So I quickly ran to the gate to close it, but I was too late. Clarabelle got out. And she was like, woohoo, this is the perfect opportunity for me to kick my heels up and get the zoomies out. So thankfully, I've got my big ring. And she went down into the ring. I mean, the horses know where the footing is good. So if they are going to run around, they tend to go where the footing is safe, where they're not going to slip. But Clarabelle doesn't, she had only been home from her summer trip to Maine for three or four weeks. And she was back at work. Things were going really well. So she's fit. She's in good shape. But I think she just kind of forgot what the footing was like. Because she ran around the ring a couple of times and then decided she was going to run around the grassy area. And, of course, I'm like, whoa, you know, take a chill. By this time, Brody and Susie had settled. Brody got to the hay that he wanted. Everybody was kind of quieting down. And Clarabelle decided that she was going to come back up to join her friends at top speed. She saw the big rock outcropping on the hill as she was galloping towards it. I saw her see it. I saw her downshift. (laughs) That's the only way I can put it. I saw her downshift to stop her forward motion or slow her forward motion. But unfortunately, she hadn't planned on the ground being just slippery enough where the space between where she put on the brakes and the front of that rock face, she slid. She slid the last four feet, hit the sheer front of that rock face with her cannon bone. Her knee collapsed, 
banged the knee on top of the rock. She recovered, trotted up into the barnyard, shook herself off, and started eating her lunch. I saw it happen. I knew it wasn't good. I knew that there was no way this horse's cannon bone hit that rock and wasn't going to come away with at least a gash. Sure enough, there was a gash. I was kind of afraid to look at first, but honestly, when I took a peek at it, I thought, ah, all right, this actually looks pretty good. It's, it's not too bad. It was maybe an inch and a half, but it was horizontal. So I'm like, hmm, all right, I don't see any bone. I don't see any other really scary stuff. I did see a little, I think they call it periosteum, which is like this inner layer. It's almost like fascia um, over the bone and, and the tendons. So I, I saw a little bit of that and like, oh, all right, that's not that. But it, but it didn't look like this was a really deep cut. So I take her over to the hose get super cold water. I hose it. I'm looking at it. It doesn't look horrible to me. It's a little rough around the edges because the rock face was rough. You know, it wasn't a smooth edge of the rock. It was like angular. So I'm like, all right, this may need a stitch. Let me clean it up, throw some betadine on it, cover it, see what we got in a couple hours. Uh, She wasn't she was sound on it, meaning she was walking, she was fine. I thought, all right, she just she just cut the skin. So this happens at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, I got to figure this out before we get on a plane tomorrow. So I'm checking it. I spend the next couple of hours cold hosing, checking, cold hosing. And then I wrapped it for the night. The next morning, I took a look at it. I thought I'm going to hose it again. I will put some more goop on it. Betadine, flush it, whatever needs to be done. And if it looks like it needs a stitch or a veterinary attention, I'll call the vet out. It did look to me like it needed a stitch and some professional cleaning. It's the kind of thing where I thought we could probably get away with it, but I really don't want it to leave a scar. So let's call the vet. I call the vet's office. I tell them, I'm not going to be here, but I really think this should be looked at. They're like, okay, we'll do an emergency call. The vet can get out there this afternoon. I thought, well, I'll be in the air by the time you get here, but there will be, my working student will be here and the person who's going to be taking care of my horses while I'm away will be here. Okay, no problem. It turns out that the vet arrived while I was in the air for the only two hours (laughs) that whole week that I was not reachable by phone. That was the two hours that the vet was treating Clarabelle. But I did leave instructions when I talked to them earlier that whatever the vet felt like she needed to do, I gave permission for them to do. X-rays, ultrasounds, whatever it was. We landed in Savannah and my phone rings and it's the vet. I'm in the airport. We're waiting for our baggage. And she's giving me like a 30-minute rundown of what they found, what she did, what the next steps are, what we have to look out for. I was so grateful for how articulate my vet was, how well she explained to me what happened, what she found, what the prognosis could be, all of it. I felt comfortable that while I was away for the next four days, helping Grace get settled in school, that between the veterinary care and the folks taking care of my horses, that Clarabelle would be fine. I get regular updates throughout my stay in Georgia. 
Buck and I fly home. I get back. Clarabelle looks fine. She's eating. She's drinking. She's peeing. She's pooping. I take her temperature. Uh, the ladies who were caring for her had a chart of her temp. Bandage changes the whole night. I'm feeling great. I'm like, oh, whew, that was a close call. And then about two days afterwards, I look at the bandage. You know, I, I do a bandage change when I get home. And I'm like, geez, this really doesn't look like I thought it was going to look after five days of quality care and healing. So I take her temp and it's a little high. I take a picture of the wound. I send it to the vet. I'm like, I'm not sure. Does this, does this look right? She's like, yep. It's a little proud flesh that's developing. It happens. We'll keep an eye on it. Put this goop on it. Keep doing what you're doing. Okay. A couple days later, I take another picture, send it to the vet. Really? I get proud flesh, but this is looking ugly. She says, yeah, let me come out and take another look. She comes out. She says, yep, we're going to need to scrape off that proud flesh. We're going to debride it. Go Google proud flesh when you have a minute. But essentially, it, um, it's the body's over-exuberance in healing a wound. And so it just gets thick and lumpy. And what happens is it prevents the edges of the wound from knitting together or migrating together to close it. When you have a clean cut and you want to suture or stitch a wound together, you're basically taking the edges or the margins of that wound and you're sewing them together. When you don't suture something, you know, just like any cut, eventually that wound will knit together. But the edges need to have the ability to, to migrate towards one another. When you have a wound with proud flesh, the proud flesh gets in the way of those margins meeting one another and therefore closing the wound. So the vet will come and debride it with a sharp blade. And she'll cut that proud flesh away and it bleeds a lot, but that's okay. It, it looks ugly, but it has a purpose. We just have to manage it by debriding it every now and again so that the wound can actually close up. Okay, so she does this. And at the same time, she takes an x-ray and she takes an ultrasound of the area just to make sure that we don't have something called a bony sequestrum developing, which is when the bone gets hit hard enough, um, because this area of the cannon bone actually does have some blood supply, it can die off. So that blood supply can be damaged. It can be unhealthy. Uh, I think they call it devitalized bone, which means it's just, it's not healthy. So it ends up dying. That can take several weeks to happen. So the concern was that Clarabelle hit her cannon bone hard enough where she damaged the top layer of bone and that were kind of just is a waiting game. Is the bone going to die off? It's kind of like when you smash your fingernail, <laughs> right? Um, sometimes it stays on and sometimes it turns black and falls off. It's kind of the same principle. The problem was this wound was still oozing pus. It wasn't clear liquid that, that it was oozing, which would tell us that it was healing the right way. So my vet said, listen, I think we need to refer her to a surgical team. We can 
send her to Tufts or we can send her to Myrie in New Hampshire. Whoever can take her first. Well, there's definitely a shortage of veterinarians because it was tough finding a spot for this mare. And time was of the essence because, you know, we didn't want a bacterial infection to start taking over. I, I, I was worried about lymphangitis. I was worried about, you know, prognosis for soundness. Like, is, am I going to ever be able to ride her again? So I'm freaking out a little bit because I finally found this horse who's just perfect for me. And then I, you know, if a cut on her cannon bone was going to be the end of her, I, I just don't know what I would have done. So I'm like, all right. If we can get her into Tufts, that's better because that's only two hours for me, whereas Myrie was like a four-hour drive. We get her into Tufts, thank God, and they do the first of three surgeries. This was a standing surgery. They go into the wound. They clean it up. They look at it. They get a real in-depth view of what's happening inside the wound and with the bone. Things look good, they say. A couple of days later, they're going to do their first bandage change, and they call me. The thing I really like about Tufts is that they called me every single day with an update on Clarabelle, even when she was doing nothing but standing around in her stall. <laughs> They'd say, Clarabelle's good. She's eating. She's pooping. She's happy. No change. Just wanted to give you an update. But the bandage changes were important. Here's why. Distal limb wounds are very difficult to heal in horses. I'm going to say that again, and I want you to think about this, chew on it, and never forget it. Distal limb wounds are very difficult to heal in horses. Horse legs are kind of unique um, because of their physiology. And so what happens is, now I'm not a vet, but because things over the cannon bone are so taut, they're tight, right? Skin, tendons, the bone, there's not a lot of, there's no muscle there, there's no fat, there's not a lot of room for error. And when there's a wound on the cannon bone, any little movement that the horse makes is going to move the skin, it's going to move that periosteum, there's going to be friction. Even just standing there, shifting weight, moves those biological materials. It moves the skin. It moves the tendons. That friction can inhibit the wound healing. So keeping the leg and that area still was important. So the right kind of bandaging was important. So the surgical team is doing these bandage changes. And you don't want to change the bandage too often because that kind of activity around the wound, again, will inhibit it's healing. We want this thing to be calm and quiet and close up. So the less bandage changes, the less irritation, the better. At the same time, we want to make sure that it's healing, that there's no extra bacteria in there. Things are looking the way we want them to look. So these daily phone calls became like a soap opera. <laughs> Every three days, there would be a bandage change. And we'd all cross our fingers that the wound underneath the bandage was healing the way we all wanted it to heal. Unfortunately, for the first two weeks that Clarabelle was there, that wasn't happening. In fact, it looked like it was getting worse. So Clarabelle goes in for a second surgery. We need to debride this some more. We need to clean it out. Okay. They do that. And then we wait. Then the daily soap opera begins again. 
every phone call. No bandage change today. Clarabelle's just hanging out in her stall, but boy, is she a sweet mare. Okay, thanks. I'll talk to you tomorrow. We're doing a bandage change. So here I am at home, right? I'm like, okay, it's Wednesday. They're doing a bandage change on Thursday. I can't wait to get the phone call, right? My fingers are crossed that they're going to be like, oh, we did the bandage change today, and it looks good. Well, that didn't happen. After the second standing surgery, I got a phone call. We're really concerned about this wound. It is not healing. It looks like there's some, there's a pocket, you know, in the upper right quadrant of this wound that's, it just looks like it's, it's unhealthy. <laughs> I'm like, all right, is, is it like unhealthy? Like it's going to cost me another $5,000 unhealthy or unhealthy? Like, oh, it'll be another day or two and we'll just give it some time. <laughs> yeah, no. This time they suggested sending Clarabelle back to surgery, only instead of doing it standing this time, they needed to lay her down. When you lay a horse down for surgery, there's much greater risk for complications than when you do a standing surgery. So at this point, I'm really racking up the bills. But we're so far into this, and, and I've never experienced this type of complication before. Um, I'm like, I, I'm out. My reserve emergency funds are out. I cannot afford this. So I don't know what to do. Well, thank goodness for Dr. Best at Tufts Hospital for Large Animals. She was amazing. And I don't throw that word around often. But her patience and her bedside manner and her commitment to talking to me like a peer was so helpful, especially at a time where I had to make a decision that we didn't know, you know, they were going to lay her down and do the surgery. They didn't know what they were going to find. It could have been a waste of time. But because Dr. Best answered all of my questions, she walked me through all of the theories and all of the risks, I finally was able to come to a decision that I felt comfortable with, and that was lay her down, go back in there, and do what you have to do. Well, it worked. They went in there. They found a little tiny pocket of problematic tissue that it was just kind of buried deep underneath there. You know, why it started to die off, I don't know. I'm sure they do. But they scraped that out, bandaged her back up, <laughs> and the daily soap opera began again. What was nice about the phone call this time after that surgery was that they went in and they did find something that was problematic. So that made me feel good. Right. I mean, we're waiting for this wound to heal. It's not happening. Could it be something in there that was inhibiting it? Something in there that was was causing a problem? Yes, they went in. They found it. Okay. Now I'm hopeful once again. For the first bandage change, the news wasn't that great. You know what? Something's not right. There's still some kind of discharge. An odor doesn't smell right. If we think there's still a little infection that's going on in there. She has no temperature. There is no swelling anywhere else on this horse. She's like, you know, a one and a half out of five unsound on it. Like, like she's doing great in all other ways. But there's this slight odor when they're changing the bandage. Okay. Well, now what? We took a tissue sample, and we have to send it off to be cultured so we know exactly what kind of bacteria we're dealing with so that we can target that with an antibiotic that's going to work. 
She had been on initially, she had been on SMZs, which I know many of you have heard of and have probably used. When she got to the hospital, they did IV antibiotics, a little cocktail, broad spectrum on what horses typically present with when it comes to microbes and wounds. The concern was that Clarabelle's body wasn't responding to these antibiotics. That's a big problem. And I know that a lot of veterinarians are involved in discussions about how to overcome the challenge of antibiotic-resistant microbes. Um, it's the same thing in people, right? MRSA, staph infections, these things are evolving to beat our antibiotics because we're throwing so many antibiotics out there at them. So I'm like, all right, well, we got to wait for this bacteria, you know, this tissue culture to come back. How long is that going to be? Five days. Okay. Mind you, every day that she's in the hospital is a lot of money. <laughs> a lot. So I'm like, all right, that's another week. Add to my bill. At this point, I'm not even, I I'm just telling the billing lady, put it on my American Express. I'll deal with it when I have the emotional fortitude to deal with it. Unfortunately, I did not have medical insurance on Clarabelle. The, the primary reason was I was in the process of completing the application for it, but it happened right around the same time I was taking Grace down to college. I was filling out the paperwork for her insurance when this happened, and then, of course, we got on the plane. So it was just a bad timing issue. All right, so money situation aside, we're waiting five days for the culture. We can't really do anything until that tissue culture comes back. The soap opera continues. On the fifth day, Tufts calls me. Helena, I have good news. We found the bacteria, and it's a little out of the ordinary. That's why she wasn't responding to the antibiotics. Okay, good. When the tissue culture came back, it showed that she had Klebsiella and Bordadella. Okay. Klebsiella, the vets have heard about. That's pretty common. But Bordadella wasn't really, they were kind of surprised to hear that, honestly. Bordadella, you know, you usually hear about in dogs. Well, we don't have any dogs here at Hoo Hollow. So who knows where she picked that up. But those were the two that were in the wound. The good news was that one antibiotic was able to treat both of those bacteria. Huh. So the antibiotic we ordered is called marboflaxin. No, marbofloxacin. Marbofloxacin. I'll put a link up in show notes to information about it. So that's, you know, so the SMZs and the gentamicin that they had been giving her, not going to work on Klebsiella or Bordadella, but the marbofloxacin <laughs> did work. Eventually, they were able to take the catheter out of her jugular vein, and she didn't have to be on antibiotics, um, IV antibiotics anymore. She was able to take these by mouth. The bandage changes were down to every two days because they really needed to check on this infection. Things really started to look good finally, so they had gotten that little chunk of necrotic tissue out. They found the right antibiotic, and now the soap opera and the cliffhanger phone calls were starting to get better and better and I'm getting more hopeful. The injury happened, what did I say, September 7th or 8th? And by November 10th, yes, by November 10th, 
Clarabelle was able to be discharged from the hospital. She could not come home (laughs) because the bandaging is so specific for this type of wound. It has to be done very carefully, with very specific timing, and with help. So she went to a rehab facility, and thankfully, that facility is led by one of the surgeons who cared for Clarabelle while she was in the hospital. So he's a tough surgeon. Great care. She is still on stall rest. She's going to be there, we think, for at least another week. It's November 30th, so she's not home yet. It's just under two hours from my house, so I am trying to get up there to see her twice a week, but I have a job and two other horses. However, she's looking good. She's a little bit more back to herself. You know, she's got other horses that she can see. She's got fresh air and sunshine. They do take her out for a little hand grazing, you know, 15 minutes a day. I I mean, I can't say enough good things about the care she's getting at the layup facility. Um, The thing about bandaging is, especially this particular wound, you can't do it by yourself. You really need to have somebody capture the horse's attention so she's not paying attention to the wound because any touching or movement or wrapping is going to be painful. Now, for Clarabelle, it wasn't a tremendous amount of pain. It's just every time I changed the bandage, she would lift the leg up. You know, she'd pick her hoof up, not aggressively, not violently, not full of anxiety and tension, but almost as if she was just slightly irritated. But that movement alone was enough to make getting the bandage on the wound in just the right place with the goop that was on it challenging. And it's going to add to friction and irritation, right? So having A, somebody who's really good at changing bandages, B, knowing exactly what goop to put on when and where, and then having a technician hold the horse but also keep her distracted enough so that she's not thinking about the little irritation of the bandage change. And and therefore, you can get the bandage on just right. Because it really was a nuanced process. I'm no stranger to bandage changes. I'm not afraid of them. Um, Of course, I am now because the bandage changes I was doing at home in between the second veterinary visit here at my place and having her admitted to Tufts, there was some confusion there about what the best course of action should be. And I have to say that it, it shook my confidence a little bit in my ability to bandage. That said... After watching, you know, I went up a couple of times to Tufts and their team is just so accommodating. They, you know, I went in for a couple of the bandage changes, looked at what they were doing, saw how they packed it, saw how they wrapped it. It, This is not something that the layperson could do, even the experienced layperson. And I think considering how much time, effort, energy, and money we put into healing this wound, I'd rather have her stay at the layup facility and get professional bandage changes because I do not want to take a single step backward with this horse. Through the entire process, this whole journey, every veterinarian I've talked to about this situation, including Dr. Madison Siemens, who, Dr. Siemens, if you're listening, thank you for lending an ear and your advice. Side note, listeners, 
Make sure you check the show notes for this episode. I'm going to put a link to a product called Manuka Honey, which I don't know, I'm a day late and a dollar short on this one, but Dr. Siemens brought it up to me. He explained it to me and um, Manuka Honey. So go to the show notes and, and link to it. You'll, you'll be pleased with what you find. Um, so through this whole process, all the vets were saying distal limb wounds are so, so difficult to heal. I listened to veterinary podcasts on it. I listened to podcasts on antibiotic-resistant microbes. I mean, I dove deep into this stuff. And yeah, distal limb wounds in horses are so hard to heal. That's why we wrap our horses' legs up. I never really understood why some people were obsessed with wrapping their horses' legs. I thought it was because they were really concerned about the horse's athletic performance. Should they hurt themselves? Should they interfere? I thought it was all about athletic performance. I never realized that it's an insurance policy. Even from a nick, the tiniest little nick can end up a really big problem. Now, you know, Clarabelle crashed into a rock. That's not a small deal. But as I dive into this particular wound type, I now have a very healthy respect <laughs> for wrapping our horse's legs. There's a lot of things about them that we want to leave au naturel, let their bodies work on, but horses' legs are very unique, and they heal differently than other parts of their body, and they heal differently than, than human bodies. So our expectations and the way we treat these kinds of wounds is different. And, and what I have learned through this whole process, this whole very expensive gut-wrenching process, is that an ounce of prevention is worth 12,000 pounds of cure. What could I have done differently? If we go back to the source, one of the things I could have done differently is fenced off that rock. It's too big. And again, I'll post a picture of it in the show notes. It was too big to remove. It's huge. It's like five feet long by three feet wide. And probably only the top of it sticks out of the ground. The fact that it had a rough edge is, is, makes it even worse. I mean, I'm really kicking myself for that. So what could I have done? I could have fenced that off. <sighs> okay. Can we eliminate every single danger or risk in our horse's environment? You know the answer. No. But we do have to look at the environment in which we keep our horses, make a mental note of the risks, of the things that could be a problem, and really weigh those risks. Think about them. I probably could have fenced off that rock for $500. Or I could spend 12000 and counting to fix the problem that rock created. Is this a stroke of bad luck that my horse hit the rock and ends up with such a bad wound? Maybe. But again, now knowing what I know about these kinds of wounds, yeah, it's pretty predictable. And I know there's a lot of people out there who have experienced the challenges of proud flesh. And I know there's also a lot of people who understand that there are antibiotic-resistant bacteria out there in the world. So it's a little bit of this perfect storm that put Clarabelle where she is right now. Um, and who's to say that if I did fence off that rock, that she wouldn't have crashed into the fence and had the same problem. The key takeaway here is to respect the risks. 
to look at them, understand them, and even have a plan for them. I have a financial emergency reserve. Thank God I had one for this type of thing. This type of thing ended up being twice my reserve. (laughs) That's a very tough lesson for me to learn. I paid $1,500 for Clarabelle's adoption. So in my opinion, every penny that I spent to get this horse back to health is worth it. She's the perfect horse for me. I could go out there on the internet, find a horse for $15,000, and probably do all the things that I want to do with it right away. <laughs> but, I mean, that that's fun, maybe, for a week or so. But it certainly wouldn't teach me all of the things that I have learned through this process, through having Brody, having Susie, having Clarabelle, dealing with their health issues, dealing with their mental issues, dealing with their training, dealing with my own riding, my own horsemanship stuff. You know, if you play your cards right and you really make an effort, there's growth on the other side of pain. And so I have grown as a horse keeper, as a horse woman, and as a human being through this. Call it toxic positivity if you have to. I'm calling it a different kind of education. The takeaway, again, is assess the risks of your horse's environment. Talk to your veterinarian. Talk to a professional about what kinds of things you can do to mitigate those risks. Research medical insurance for your horse, please. And if medical insurance isn't in the cards for you, start a reserve fund. You don't want to have that conversation. I mean, it comes up all the time with animals. You don't want to have that conversation that ends with, I can't afford it. I mean, it happens, right? I get it. But if you can start your own little reserve, your own little insurance fund, it's just going to make things a little less painful. So my gratitude also to American Stalls for supporting the Stall and Stable show Their financial support has pretty much gone directly to Tufts. (laughs) So I have to say thank you to Yash and the American Stalls team for supporting Stall and Stable. I opened up this episode with do as I say, not as I do. Part of the reason that I do this show and part of the reason that I consult is so that I can share some of the mistakes that I've made with my listeners, with my clients. So hopefully you won't make the same mistakes. I don't ever imagine a time in my life where I will not have horses. So I will continue to make mistakes and I will continue to share those with you. I try not to overreact to things. I try not to be overly dramatic and to be realistic and saying, okay, we we can't bubble wrap our horses. We can't eliminate every risk from their lives. Let's find a nice middle ground that, that we're all happy with, that's healthy for our horses and that we can afford. But I implore you to take my advice. Uh, in situations like this. If you're building a barn, you have a farm, you're retrofitting your farm, anything that has to do with the environment that you're keeping your horses in, if you have questions, please go up to stallandstable.com and click the book an appointment button. I'm here. I can, depending on your area, I can come out to your farm. I can do FaceTime. I can do Zoom. And at the very least, I can tell you where you might have unnecessary risks on your farm. 
And if I can't tell you that, I'm going to refer you to somebody who can. Thank you once again for listening to this story, to this episode, and to the Stall and Stable show. If you like our show, I hope you will go up to your favorite podcast player and leave a positive review. The more people who leave reviews, the more likely we are to attract new listeners. And the more listeners we have, the more horses we can help. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>